0: Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Herron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writers. Welcome to episode number 297 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Herron, and I am so excited. You are here today. As I'm talking to a friend of mine, John Rickford, and we'll go into his bio at the end of this introduction. But he is a delight who I met in my um the class I taught at Stanford, uh, which was Fast Draft Your Memoir, which turned into the book that uh, I wrote on the same topic. And he is such a special dear incredibly intelligent person who, you know, those people, if you're in a class or a group and when they walk in, everyone lights up because they're there, that's John. And I was just tickled to be able to talk with him about the release of his new memoir that he drafted in my class and then publisher picked it up, and it got published, and now it's out there, and um, I do apologize for a little bit of the recording quality. There are some uh, stops and stutters as uh, we had some Wi-Fi issues, but they don't last long, so hang in there, and the lag will go away. So that is coming up. You are going to adore John. I know that. What has been going on around here? Just a lot of work on the memoir, and I am I'm rounding... Mm the bend. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, today, in fact, was the day that I had to try to fix the most problematic chapter. I was doing a lot of work with the structure and that's been going great. And I've been doing work within the, the chapters and scenes and that's been fine, but there was one chapter that was just um, pretty flawed. And I thought it would be very very heavy lifting and it wasn't i managed to use my 3 hours of writing time today and i just fixed it i i had given myself i think 3 days on the schedule just to do this one 5000 word chapter and it didn't take it it just took one day and it felt really satisfying i had that experience of joy when things popped into my mind that i could use oh this is exactly what i've been looking for and it belongs here and then if i do this i can tie this thread to it and oh i'd lost track of this thread but this will hook onto this beautifully and it was so it was a really satisfying day of writing and i'm almost done and i can't remember cuz you know my brain and my memory i can't remember if i told y'all what i'm going to do with the memoir and uh, i i don't think i have and don't get mad because i have been saying that um, I love this book. I'm super proud of this book and I wanted to self publish it. I still want to self publish it. It is kind of my, it's still my first, it's, it's still what I want to do most. However, I decided to do something and I asked my agent about it and she's all for it. I said, I would like to give you this memoir for a short amount of time and you can try to sell it for big money, capital B, capital M. I will know big money when I see it. And if she can't get big money, then I will self-publish it. What I don't want is this book to languish in the land of traditional publishing where I have landed many, many times before, where they don't give you that much money. I mean, they give you money, great, fantastic, but they don't give you enough money to for them to feel like they must do a big marketing effort for you. And Work hard to get it in places like Target and Costco and Walmart and uh, co-op at all the major, all at all the major book retailers like Barnes and Noble, the one, um, that kind of thing. So, and what's nice about that is that I'm not asking her to do much work. I'm asking her to read the book, make sure she stands behind it. I've already paid for and done the major revision, which I am uh, very, I'm confident in. I'm confident in the work that I have been doing. So my agent won't even have to spend that time that she normally really likes to do, you know, trying to get me to edit it and change it in ways that that make me worry. What I'm asking her to do is read it and write a submission letter and send it out to publishers. And if she hears crickets or laughter, absolutely fine. My first choice is to self-publish unless that first choice gets bumped out of first choice uh, first place and into second place by being offered capital B big capital M money it's a long shot It's a very 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 long shot but why not try it right I it's a really nice position to be in knowing that I have all control over it I get to call all the shots. And if a traditional publisher offers me something that I don't want to take, I get to say no, because I know now from republishing, revising and republishing a life in stitches, I know how to sell memoir. I know I'm getting better at doing ads for memoir and getting it in front of people and getting it to sell well. So I know that I can do it. And that is a very powerful place to be and it makes me feel good. So that's where I am. Hopefully I am... I'm I'm hoping that the next time I talk to y'all next week in this little update, I will have sent it off to Susanna. It may be another day or two after that, but I'm very, very close. The chapters that are coming up now are not... The difficult ones. Um, they they require some. They require some polish. Uh, but they they had started out strong. So, so excellent. That's excellent. What else has been going on? Well, um, if you are looking at me on the YouTube video, which most of you don't, most of, the vast majority of you listen on the podcast. But I had a little bit of a meltdown over the weekend about my office and how I got this fantastic huge desk. I've never had a big desk before. When my partner got a rise standing, rising, falling desk. I got her old, bigger desk that came with the furniture that we purchased when we moved into this house. Um, and I love it. But it meant that the, the guest bed has been behind me. And I have been hating that. I've been hating people thinking that I'm sitting in my bedroom doing all of this stuff. And I don't know why it just—it just feels really unprofessional, and I didn't like it. Uh, And I tried all of these methods to try to make it look not like a bedroom. I bought a what do you call Uh, this—a screen—that I put around myself very tightly. And most people, when I asked about it on Twitter, hated it. Two people said it would give them migraines, and it'll probably give me a migraine. So uh, on Sunday, I guess it was, I. Just started reorganizing the whole office, and I'm really pleased with how it looks behind me. I've got some of my books on a table. For those of you who can't see it, I've got books on the table behind me, and my own books. And then I've just got my some of my TBR pile piled around the room. I went to the hardware store and I bought a ton of plants. Hopefully, I will keep most of them alive, and they are at different levels and lots of pillows on the, if you're, that's a sweater that's taking up the room on the bed right now, if you're looking at me, but um, on the bed, there's a lot of pillows that try. I'm trying to make it look more like a couch situation. And I think I'm almost pulling it off. And it's just a really nice homey place to be and to write in. And I realized that I hadn't spent much time making this room a haven for me. It is my office and it was useful. And we moved into this rental and bought the 22-year-old's furniture in place, and I just hadn't done anything other than that. We're not allowed to put things on the walls, although we have in a few places uh, because it's a rental. So it just, I just never really moved in, and now I feel like i am moved in, and that feels great. Also, if you are looking at me on the, on the, uh, on the YouTube, I have not had lip filler done, and my face is not normally this puppy puffy. But yesterday I had, uh, I have this. Uh, autoimmune disease called hereditary angioedema type three. Oh my God. If you have this reach out, there's like, I don't know, 80 of us in the world with this stupid thing. And that's a, that's a guess. It may be lower than that. There are not very many people with this, Uh, but what, what happens sometimes it can be fatal. It can uh, make parts of your body swell up usually my lips, but it has gone to my larynx, which is how people die. Uh, It is not an allergic reaction. Things like epinephrine and antihistamines don't work on it. There's only a certain a certain number of uh, medicines that can help with the reaction. And it had been so long. It had been six or seven years since I had an attack. So I was just hoping I would never have one again. And I don't have any of my rescue medication uh, from the States because it requires it. You have to keep it cold. And I didn't, I just, I just haven't needed it. So um Yesterday I had an attack and I swelled up and today I am looking less chip monkey than I have been all day, but I'm very, very puffy. And I am grateful for New Zealand medicine because the doctor's already on it, trying to get me uh, what I need. And But I, you know, I have to say that whenever anything health related rises up like that, it can be such a challenge to get in the chair. I am very pleased with myself that I got my work done today. Had I not got my work done today, I would have been gentle on myself because yesterday was a bunch of stress and quite a bit of pain. And uh, But because it was just in my lips and usually when it's in my lips, it doesn't go to my larynx. So I just did my normal stuff and I put a mask on and I went and got my haircut for the first time in a year. And so I enjoyed the haircut process. I'm enjoying the haircut. And uh, <laughs> I think that's really probably more than you wanted to know about my personal life. So... Let us get into the interview with John Rickford. Let me give you his bio. You're going to love this guy john r rickford is the j e wallace sterling professor of linguistics emeritus at stanford university he received his ba with highest honors in sociolinguistics from the university of california santa cruz in 1971 and his phd in linguistics from the university of pennsylvania in 1979 he is an expert in the relation between language and ethnicity social class and style language variation and change pidgin and creole languages Caribbean and African-American Vernacular English and the Application of Linguistics to Educational and Social Problems. He is the author of numerous scholarly articles and books, including his most recent book, Speaking My Soul, Race, Life, and Language, which is the honest story of his life from his early years as the youngest of 10 children in Guyana to his status as emeritus professor of linguistics at Stanford, of the transformation of his identity from colored or mixed race in Guyana to black in the USA, and of his lifetime of work championing black talk and its speakers. Please enjoy this fabulous interview with a guy I am very proud to call a friend. And here is John. Enjoy. Hey, you're a writer. Did you know that I send out a free weekly email of writing encouragement? Go sign up for it at rachelherron.com slash write, and you'll also get my Stop Stalling and Write PDF with helpful tips you can use today to get some of your own writing done. Okay, now on to the interview. Well, I am so pleased that you are here, John. Will you please uh, share your name and pronouns with us today?
1: My name is John Rickford, R-I-C-K-F-O-R-D, and my pronouns are he and him.
0: John, I have not seen you in a while. Yes. And I am so glad Cheers. to see you. Yes. Yes. It was it was the semester at Stanford just before the pandemic, right?
1: Um, 2019. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: you were in my class, uh, Fast Draft Your Novel. I'm sorry. Fast Draft Your Memoir. And... I have to mention, if you don't mind yes. me mentioning, I should have asked ahead of time, um, but you came into the first class just basically right out of hospital.
1: Yes, I was actually in the San Jose Rehab Center and they had let me out. Um, with my wife's assurances that she would bring me back. <laughs> um, so we had a drive to, to Stanford and then she came, and I, I joined your class. I, mean, I had to go back to the hospital that time. You had yeah, to go was, right back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: you had you had just suffered a stroke, and you were so excited about the class, and so happy to be there. And you yes. just never you never let it get in the way. Oh my god!
1: Yes, and it was wonderful.
0: I, it was so wonderful having you. And since then, you have produced your book which is one of your many writings. Um, but this book is speaking my soul, race, life, and language. And if you're watching on the video, there it is. How does it feel to have this book out there, John?
1: Oh, Wonderful. Wonderful. Because, you know, as I said, in my prologue, um, stroke made me aware of my mortality.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, I first decided to write this book as a way of passing on things about my life and so on that I thought at least my children should know. And then, you know, as it got bigger, <laughs> I found a publisher and I yeah. said, okay, I'm going to publish it as a book, you know? Yeah. So I did that. So that's why I call my prologue The Gift of Stroke. The Gift of Stroke. Um, and big can talk more about that later on but uh well it's a, it's a
0: beautiful book i was so happy to buy it and read it and um and i'm in the acknowledgements which make always makes me feel so happy when i see that so yeah. thank you for putting me in there that was lovely of you
1: without your course i wouldn't have known what to do and how to do it so oh. it was very critical to me you yeah. did
0: such a beautiful job so tell us about your writing process, when and where, and how did you get all of this work done?
1: Well, you know, I usually track in my academic work for years and years, I track every hour of every day. (laughs) Now, according to whether I'm doing research or, or teaching or other academic work and so on. And then I keep a weekly total compared to my targets or goals. I love that. I didn't know you did that. Yeah. You know, I, I forgot what book I, I read some book that influenced me that said, you know, um, you, you can do whatever you want to do. If you, if your goal is to lie on a beach in New Zealand for the rest <laughs> of your life, that's fine. But then make sure that the time you spend every day helps you towards that goal. Yeah. Yeah started doing this thing, and I, I just love it. I mean, it seems obsessive, but anyhow. So that during the, the first year of, of COVID, I would probably spend about 30 hours a week working on my memoir.
0: Wow, that is a lot.
1: Yes. it it. Now, later on, it got down to the 10 or 5 when the book was basically finished, and I was getting feedback from the publisher, from the the, the critic that they hired to to, to to give me feedback on the book and so on. But I was, um, uh, you know, and I was doing things like finding better photos, finding other references and so on, but it was less writing. So the writing I did at home, and I usually didn't respond to email or telephone calls. When I was working on a book, that was sacred time for writing. You know? Did
0: you answer emails and do those kind of things later in the day? Or was that for a different day of the week? Later in
1: the day. Yeah. That, was, that, was, that was a plan, you know? Yeah. Occasionally I would see something in email and I would get distracted, but um, I would try to do the writing first. You know? That is something that um,
0: helps me so much is is blocking the rest of the world's voices out until my own voice
1: has been used that day. Precisely. And, you know, to tell the truth, um, I wasn't sure that I would live to see the book published because, you know, as I said in the book, my, my father died of a stroke. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that also on my mother's side, her father died of a stroke. And two of my three brothers had died of strokes. So um, if I were not, I think, at Stanford, I had excellent care. I might well have have died too. So it was, I was newly retired and I wanted to get it finished. I didn't know if I would actually finish it. I would say things like, the publisher, you know, if I'm not here, um, correspond with my wife (laughs) or something. But uh, I lived to see it come out at, at the very end of December. And um, I'm sorry, it's still COVID time because you are limited in terms of doing reading and so on, you know, but it was, you know. So I try to put the book first, you know.
0: I love that. What is your biggest challenge when it comes to doing the writing? Well,
1: I think Deciding what would be the focus of each chapter um, and avoiding nervous eating. I tend to, I, I know when I really get into writing, I eat crackers and I try um, low-fat string cheese, you know. Um, and uh, those are the biggest kind of kinds of barriers for me, you know. Yeah. Um, if I Took that seriously, you know. But uh I would try to balance it with bike riding or what it might be, you
0: know. Yeah, when we got onto the call today, you said that you had uh you put off the bike riding so that you could have this conversation. And I'm so glad that you did. Thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What is your biggest joy when it comes to writing?
1: Well, um I think it's remembering a critical detail that helps the whole chapter hang together. You know, so you write stuff, um, but you feel like something is not really pulling it together. Um, and <clears throat> I don't I don't know if this happens to you too, but for me, um, critical ideas or memories come just before I wake up. Mm-hmm. Just before I wake up. <clears throat> of course, they're always better and then you actually wake up. You say, oh, man, I had a brilliant idea, you know, but I try to write them down sometimes. Um, So when I discovered those critical ideas or memories that make the chapters hang together, um, that was great. I think other joys came from uh, um, feedback from people like my wife, Angela, or my kids, or um, the feedback of the little group that um, that met after your class. We met in your class, um, but then you know um, uh, Maria and Lisa um, and Mitra. We would meet regularly um, after your class. And in fact, we just met um, uh, two or three weeks ago and we plan some other things to help them to finish um, their, their memorials. Um, the other thing is, when I would get uh, people that I asked, like I asked John Egard, who is a poet in England, to write my foreword. He and I were very close during our teenage years, and his experiences were like mine in many respects. And he said yes, and I was delighted. I would ask people to write blurbs. And know they all said yes isn't Um, that amazing uh of course it's the other way around now some of them are writing books and they asked me to write blog (laughs) of course i have to say yeah even though that means reading you know what now you are. Something. You are trapped yeah. in
0: that. You know, I have been working with a couple of the people in your little writing group. They've been in my um, ninety-day classes, and I hope yeah. that you know how proud of you they are. Both Lisa and Maria just say, "You know, John, I just saw. I saw John. It was so good. His book. We're yeah. so proud. It's just such a. This is another moment of me. I'm always banging on about on this particular idea that we need. Community. We need a community of writers, and you really have found a beautiful community.
1: Yes, yes, very much, very much. And in, in their case, you know, the books are so relevant to things that are happening now in Ukraine. Yes, you know, Estonia. We're sending Lisa. You know, she she's lived in Estonia. She speaks Estonian and so on. That that that's uh, the, the president. So it was featured on um, um, the news last night, you know? Yeah. So I think those things will give her extra motivation to finish a book. Yeah,
0: know? and that yeah. community and you being a uh, part of it is, uh, is crucial. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the other thing is, you know, um, I was telling someone today um, how you taught us when we make comments. To always begin with positive comments. Yeah. In fact, for a while, um, uh, you said no negative comments. Mm-hmm. I guess you could. I forgot how you used to put it. There was a way we could say. Um, what what
0: moved me was yes. What yes. affected me was yes. <laughs> when what? I'm when I'm in a when I'm teaching a class no. and we're actually Oops. doing. In class critique, I have a very specific way of doing it that we that we are only positive, even though we can talk critique points, but we have to do it in a positive way um, because new writing is so fresh and fragile. Oh, I think I may have lost you a little bit.
1: Where did you go? Oh, there you are. Excellent. Yeah, I'm sorry. My my internet switched to. We're,
0: we're doing we're, we're doing just fine. Can you Thank share you. a craft tip of any sort with us, John?
1: Well, um, I think uh, that would be about revising. Ooh, please. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I'm not a fiction writer, so I don't have much to say about character and plot and so on. Although, who knows? You know, I may evolve into one. I I, <laughs> I would not I be surprised. It. Yeah, you know, that would be, you know. But um, when it comes to revision, I give myself the same advice that I give my students, my PhD students, and, and so on. Um, when they get comments on their manuscripts in the Senator Publisher, we publish in a journal. I would say, decide what you disagree with, you know, in the, in the critique you get. Um, and you would argue strongly for the perspective that you had originally um, held. But for the majority of the critiques, just go about trying to respond to them, and incorporate the critic's perspective uh, one point at a time. I say, in many cases, after you've done it, you see the point that the critic was making. But your goal is to get published, and if you ignore the reviewer's comments, you'll never your book will never see the light of day. So people will stamp, they put it in this. If I have a right and so on and so forth, that's going to be no good, right? In the end, if they don't accept it, um, it will never be published. And furthermore, I don't know if you found this too, you might say, okay, I'm not going to go to that journal anymore. I'm going to send it somewhere else. Well, the world is fairly small. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the other critics' remarks don't get around, you know? Yeah. So... I think you just have to do what you have to do um, to get your book out.
0: And Before, and we don't want to be precious about our work. We don't, we don't want to hold it so tightly and refuse to see other people's points of view who are looking at it with different eyes and fresh eyes. Our eyes are no longer fresh. We cannot see what we put on the page anymore after a while.
1: Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, of course, to just to write, you know, I have a, a few good friends, um, who not in this class, uh, who said that they're writing, they're going to be writing their biography, autobiography. And every year I ask them, well, what have you done? Not not yet. Uh, you know, I have to walk my dog and so on and so on. I said, we learned a certain point. If you're going to be a writer, you have to write.
0: Oh, it's the most true uh, thing ever. And it's so hard to <laughs> to make people understand on a real body soul level, right? That you have to write, you have to write. That's right. So, you have to do the work. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. What May I ask you, what thing in your life affects your writing in a surprising way?
1: Well, I think, kind of come, coming back to this point, positive or constructive feedback. Yeah. Um, from, from my case, like my wife and children and friends and my group, with Maria Uluchic, Lisa Trey, and Mitro Solomon. Um, And that can affect it both in terms of what you put in and what you leave out. Um, For instance, I have a chapter on um, my monkey and my mama's monkey. You know, the two pets that grew up together, they love each other, they struggle with, with each other. And after my monkey died, um, he was bitten by a dog. The rabbit refused to eat. didn't eat for four days. I got in the best grass that I could find that I knew really he liked, and he died and so i was I was doubly heartbroken. Mm-hmm. so i I put all kinds of things in there about other cross um you know linkages between, between animals. And about, um, you know, monkey was black and rabbit was white. So I was going on about that. And my son said, Dad, cut all of that. <laughs> <laughs> he said, You're going too far, you know? And I just, I, I did. And it was, I mean, later on again, I couldn't, I, I thought this was the most important thing to say. Later on, I saw that I would have, people would have laughed at me if I, you know, Try to extrapolate from that to your own relationships. But no, you were
0: already making a beautiful point, And you were able yes. to leave that point as it was yes. on the page. And, oh, I resonate with this. I'm constantly having to yes. cut the brilliant thinking that I've done on the page because I've already yes. shown it. I don't need to tell them all over again what they already know. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. that's trusting the reader. Very that's- true. That's Very beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah. Can you tell us about the best book that you have read recently and why did you love it?
1: Um, well, oh, the, the best book I read was I, I gave my wife um, three books for Christmas that I read about in the New York Times, the best books of 2021. And um, one of them was this book called The Days of Africa. Oh, The Days of Afrokeet. Oh, I haven't read that. By Asali Solomon. Um, so, my wife couldn't read three books at the time. So, when I was reading one of them, I would, I would read the, the other two, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, this book was a very interesting book. Um, apparently, the title, Afrokeet or uh comes from a book that Audre Lorde had written years oh. ago. Um, in her bio-mythography, um, called Zami, she said that uh, the book is dedicated to afrikite an African-derived name of a black mother and a goddess. And Lorde later names herself as a mischievous linguist trickster, best beloved whom we must all become. But as I read further, I had to do this after I read the book, you know, um, after to become um, a term for anthologies and books about Black lesbian writers.
0: Oh, fascinating.
1: Uh, which this book certainly is. The, hero, the the book is about a woman called Lisselle who is married to um, uh, a, a white man who has various problems, and a lot of it has to do with her relationship with Selena, who is a black woman she met at Benmore um, in in Pennsylvania. And I think what I love the most about the book is Solomon's sharp dialogue and and witty dialogue, which moves the narrative along. You know, in fact, the next book I read after that, I was saying, where the heck is the dialogue, you know? 10, 15 pages without dialogue. And I think dialogue is something that most of us um, have a hard time trying to do right. Um, M- Maria, as you remember, Maria Oludric, um has a kind of knack for dialogue. And the, the end here is like, it's almost as if you would write to and say, Maria, can you fill in the dialogue <laughs> in my story? Which, of course, you can't do it. But... Um, uh, this book is excellent for its use. of oh,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna pick it up and put it on my to be read pile. That looks wonderful. Let's let's talk about a, a, an, another wonderful book. Can you please tell us about your book, which is called "Speaking ah. My Soul: Race, Life, and Language"? Tell us a little bit about it.
1: Well, um, race, life, and language is a book. Um, well, is bracketed by the prologue called the gift of stroke where I talk a lot about my stroke and and and, um, uh, and what impact it had on me um, starting with self-pity because um, like the second day I was at the hospital um, I lost my voice altogether. Oh, wow. I was silent I in fact, I would open my mouth and uh, nothing would come out and um, and I cried which is something i I really do. At least in my adult life, um, and luckily it came back. Uh, but I was feeling very sorry for myself until I started looking around and seeing people who were much worse off than I was. Um, there was a little eight-year-old boy. I think he had a head injury, and he just—he was in a room next to mine, and I hear him saying "Mama," you know, and you call a name, but. He wasn't very coherent. Um, and I thought, well, gee, he's worse off than me. And then one of my colleagues told him but another colleague of mine um, who had a stroke and who was badly affected. He was in a wheelchair, um, wasn't able to, to walk or even speak for a long time. And um, I kind of began to go out of myself. Mm. That's why I called it, the stroke in many ways, the gift that allowed me to start to see the, these larger perspectives. And at the epilogue, which is the end of the book, I called it um, the gift of love. Um, and it picks up on something that Cornel West had said. Um, what's the data? He said that, uh, you know, tenderness is what... There are two kinds of love. Uh, there's tenderness and there's um, justice. And justice is what the lover looks like in public. And tenderness is what love looks like in private.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I said this because um, in our, our um, front yard, we have a sign called Justice of Myles Hall. Now, people probably never heard of Myles Hall, but Miles Hall was the son of a friend of ours, my, my, my eldest daughter, um, who was shot by police. Mm. Um, he was having a kind of psych- psychiatric episode one day. And um, uh, his grandmother or somebody called the police. And um, these were not the usual police that came. Usually I think it was a woman, two women who came and were very understanding and patient. And he had this garden tool and they felt threatened and, and they killed him. Um, I had met him at the, my wife and I had met him at her house. So So my wife started a, a group um, to, to agitate, you know, for, for justice and so on for Miles uh, Hall. And in the, end, in the end, actually the city council, um, the city council, Gave them uh, um, $4 million. Uh, But of course, they didn't want to admit that the police had done anything wrong. Right. They gave them $4 million
0: to go away.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go away, you know. Um, But nevertheless, um, a congresswoman has introduced new legislation requiring them to provide another kind of response instead of just shooting people. Good. So so then in between, the chapter had the first probably seven chapters deal with my life in Guyana, where I grew up, Guyana, South America. Um, From my high school to um, my friends and girlfriends, half of which were imagined rather than... uh, (laughs) rather than real um my relationship with my wife went married and we just celebrated 50 years of marriage oh
0: congratulations uh, and i have met this beautiful woman and she's wonderful
1: yes yes I, she she came to the first class and and then she would you know come later and pick me up um and then my friend uh you thomas he and his wife would bring me later on to your class and pick me up um because I also lost my license, you know, once yeah. I, I true. Anyhow, and the next nine chapters deal with coming to America, um, which transformed me in many ways. I changed my major from um, literature to linguistics, and I changed my identity from mixed race or um, what do you to say, mulatto uh, to, to black. Partly because to begin with, everyone on campus was calling me black. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. they would say, hey brother. (laughs) And uh, I began to have a new identity. And that shaped a lot of what happened to me and what I became. So the other chapters deal with with, with things like, you know, um, uh, kind of a, a breakup I almost had with my father which I luckily resolved uh, by death of my mother, how I fell in love with linguistics. Um, uh, Rosa Parks' visit to Stanford. Rosa Parks, we brought her to Stanford for a visit um, in the 1990s. Um, uh, Stanford in Oxford. So it deals a lot with. Um, some of the linguistics that got into her. Mm-hmm. we fell in love with linguistics and uh, people like Dennis Putas, who was who was also a mixed-race person in South Africa who had been, um, he was Mandela's, he was a cell next to Mandela on Robben Island. He, he the, the South Africans got annoyed with him because he started the South African non-racist Olympic Committee, and he led by the boycotts of South Africa because they had a um, all all white um, team. Uh, he, he eventually um, uh, he was shot by the police. Um, they, they said they weren't going to handcuff him, and they hoped he would run and try to get away because that would give them an excuse to kill him. And he did. He did try to run, and they shot him but he lived uh, and he became a very vocal critic of the administration um, in South Africa. So I have in there a picture of um, the first South African to win uh, a medal, black South African to win a medal at the Olympics. Um, In this case, it was in the the marathon. Uh, So I talked a lot about him and so on. So basically I met a lot of key African-American figures over the years and they had a profound influence on me um, and the work I did.
0: And you do a beautiful job of keeping yourself in the story, which is something I always talk about. You know, you, even though you were surrounded by incredible figures of such stature, you're still the most important part of the book. And that's why the reader is there, is because they want to be there with you. And you do, just a gorgeous job of being in that book and i really want to say that because when you came in i believe yes. and correct me if i'm wrong you were really thinking about writing kind of the story of your life as you know but a lot about your dad and it wasn't as wide a scope and you widened the scope of this book i, I believe is that correct
1: oh yes yeah i mean that was the first memory you used to give us got us to write 1500 words yeah i'd yeah. give you by monday night at yeah
0: (laughs) and (laughs) And then i would get them back to you on tuesdays yeah
1: (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. and i would get them to you at about one minute or (laughs) Or four minutes
0: after 12 yeah
1: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. um and i guess the story with my dad was uh was was central there because yeah he he had um he had uh well it's a long story, but-
0: Let's, let's leave um, it for the book, but uh, if you could give us like the one sentence overview.
1: Well, um, I think the thing is that um, I, was like, like I, was, I was like a sophomore, sophomoric, I had said after the first year, you know, I know best, I'm gonna walk my own path. If you don't like what I'm doing, tough, I can, you know, go, go it alone. And um, he said, forgive me, my son. I meant no such harm as your mm-hmm. Uh And he, he went on, to, it was a complicated story, uh, but he basically told me that he forgave me. And it's, it's, it's a bit of advice I've often passed on to, to um, other parents yeah. and try to follow myself. Uh, be humble enough to admit when you were wrong,
0: and to ask uh, for that forgiveness,
1: yeah. yeah. But I, I, it was an important thing, but it was only one chapter in a larger tapestry. Yeah. <laughs> how does it?
0: How does it feel now to hold this whole tapestry in your hand?
1: Oh, it's it's so good, so satisfying because you know, it's a book that ordinary people can read and understand, and Routledge has been excellent. Um, they were very demanding about the quality of photographs. They were very demanding about chapter summaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, they, they were very demanding, but you know they they so they put about seventy. I love it. They put about seventy maps or pictures into the book, um, and on a, a kind of uh, photographic paper so that. The pictures are kind of appear all over the book instead of just like a little. They're gorgeous, search. yeah. And they gave me a twenty-one page index.
0: I know. I noticed page.
1: that. Yes,
0: that's wonderful. So
1: when I when I know that I've talked about something and I can't remember what, i would look in the index myself.
0: <laughs> and they paid to have so, that index done.
1: That's wonderful. Yes. Uh, now I, I I tell people not everyone is going to do that because yeah. I've looked at. Lots and lots of memoirs, and they don't yeah. have that. Yeah. But um, I was lucky to get a good um, a publisher. And, well, you were, uh, and you were,
0: it. you were, you wrote a great book, and that's
1: and that's how you got that well, publisher. So, it, you know, and really, uh, Rachel, your course was, I mean, was everything to me. It, it gave me the focus. It gave me the techniques. uh, It gave me the group feedback, even after the the course had finished. Um, And I'm so glad I didn't wait for another quarter. I said, ah, she's probably going to teach it another quarter. I I said, no, I'm working (laughs) against I've got to get this now. And I am so
0: I'm so glad that I met you and that you were in that course and that we're having this chat today. And I just want to say I did not write any part of this book, but I still feel very proud of you. And oh, I'm yeah. so glad you've been on the show today. Thank you so very much. And please keep in touch with me as you move forward.
1: And someday, you're, you're in Wellington now? Yes. Yes. So someday i come back. I... I'll We'll hold
0: you to it. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write?